This hearing on the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Africa and Global, Global Health Policy will come to order. I appreciate the attendance of uh, certainly the witnesses and all others here. Uh, glad to have Gov Governor Dado from Kenya here as well. Thank you for, for coming. I want to apologize from the outset. Uh, we're in the middle of votes right now. Um, I voted on the first one and uh, will wait as long as I can to go and vote on the second one. Hopefully we can get as much testimony in as possible. Um, and uh, Ranking Member Markey uh, is in a meeting and voting and he'll be here as soon as he can as well. And so, but uh, given our, our short time frame this afternoon, we thought it best to, to get started. So thank you for your indulgence there and apologize for the lack of members here. They'll likely trickle in as we, as we go along and votes end. Uh, today we're examining the wildlife poaching in sub-Saharan Africa. Illegal wildlife trade is one of the uh, most lucrative illicit practices in the world, uh, generating between eight and $10 billion each year. And wildlife trafficking has uh, been especially stark uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, where poacher activity is just decimating African elephant and rhino populations, uh, two of the big five animals that provide a significant draw for visitors uh, to southern and east Africa in particular. The poaching crisis, which is driven by demand from outside of the continent, uh, hampers Arizona, or I'm sorry, Arizona. <laughs> I slip every once in a while, Africa, <laughs> my two loves. Hampers uh, Africa's economic growth potential, threatening good governance by fueling corruption and undermining security. The social impact of trafficking is also significant at the local level. And we'll hear about some of that today, where the practice threatens jobs in game reserves and uh, the communities that surround them. Uh, poaching has also had ramifications on the security front. Rangers and other law enforcement officials have been uh, killed at the hands of poachers. And uh, we, the need to address wildlife trafficking draws resources away from other much needed security efforts. Now today's hearing will focus on efforts to address poaching at the source. We're also going to hear our witnesses' thoughts on wildlife trafficking legislation that's been introduced in Congress. Uh, each of our witnesses today brings a unique perspective to the issue at hand. I have no doubt that it will contribute greatly to the debate that we're having here. I thank you for your time and for sharing your expertise. I enjoyed uh, reading testimony uh, last night and uh, look forward to the testimony here today. We'll go ahead and uh, introduce and then go from there. Mr. Ian Saunders, co-founder and chief operating officer of the Kenyan conservation NGO Savo Trust. In uh, this role, he oversees the implementation of its st uh, stabilization through conservation strategy. Uh, previously, Mr. Saunders worked uh, with Africa's largest private anti-poaching unit at that time in Tanzania. In addition, he previously served as a senior security advisor to the United Nations in Afghanistan. Mr. Jean-Marc Fromont, currently is uh, the conservation director at African Parks, a conservation management organization with parks in eight African countries. Mr. Fromont has uh, advanced conservation efforts in the DRC's uh, Garamba National Park and as an independent expert has also worked as a manager in national parks and protected areas in Cameroon and the Congo. Uh, George Wittemeyer is the chairman of the scientific board of Save the Elephants, as well as assistant professor, uh, professor of fish, wildlife, and conservation biology at Colorado State University. As a Fulbright fellow in 1997, uh, Dr. Wittemeyer uh, founded a long-term uh, Samburu elephant monitoring project in northern Kenya. Um, since uh, that, Dr. Wittemeyer's more than 40 
uh, peer-reviewed articles have received over 2,000 academic citations. I found that uh, what's going on there with the testimony quite, quite interesting. Uh, Ms. Jeanette uh, Hemley is a senior vice president for conservation at the World Wildlife Fund. In this role, she tracks execution of World Wildlife Fund's local to global strategy uh, to conserve uh, ecologically important places and leads conservation advocacy campaigns. She also chairs the WWF Network's Global Conservation Committee, uh, which sets strategy and policy for WWF's uh, international conservation program. Again, uh, thank you all for being here today. Um, your full testimony will be, uh, without objection, uh, entered into the record. Uh, so if you could please keep your remarks to around five minutes, that would help us uh, get through the testimony and to question. With that, the uh, committee rec recognizes Mr. Saunders. Uh, thank you, Chairman Flake, um, uh, Ranking Member Markey, uh, and distinguished members of the committee. Thank you for inviting me to testify at this important hearing on wildlife poaching, and I appear for you in my capacity as Chief Operations Officer and Co-Founder of the Savo Trust. I request that my full statement be included in the record. My family have lived and worked in Kenya and Tanzania for the last three generations, and I have served in uh, various security, governance, wildlife management, and sustainable development positions over the last 30 years, including with the British Army, the United Nations, uh, in both security and counter-terrorism capacity, and I'm a trained ecologist. During the early and mid-1990s, I recruited, trained, and operated what was at the time the largest private anti-poaching unit in Africa, working closely with the Tanzanian Wildlife Division. Savo Trust's mission in Kenya is to secure strategic areas in the greater Savo area for the benefit of wildlife and people uh, through innovation, partnership, and stewardship. Savo Trust is focused on building the capacity of communities to manage their own land, wildlife and natural resources, and to impl implement their own enterprises and to develop their own revenue, infrastructure and community governance frameworks. We call this our stabilization through conservation approach. At 16,000 square miles, or twice the size of the state of Massachusetts, the iconic Savo landscape is Kenya's largest and most important intact natural ecosystem. The Greater Savo Ecosystem is located in the southeast part of Kenya and forms part of the Savo Amboseli Chulu Hills ecosystem and hosts Kenya's largest elephant population at approximately 12,000 elephants. Its Chulu Hills catchment area feeds Mombasa, Kenya's second city, with most of its fresh water. Over the past 10 years, populations of elephants have dropped by 50% in Africa, primarily due to wildlife poaching. Savo occupies a strategically pivotal space between the coastal belt and the interior of Kenya. The Savo region is a potential security buffer against destabilizing forces seeking to infiltrate deeper into East Africa through Kenya's coastal entry points and from Somalia. But this critical landscape is now at risk from a complex interrelated uh, array of threats, including wildlife trafficking, human wildlife conflict, small arms proliferation, human poverty, biodiversity loss, transboundary organized crime, and even violent extremism. The poaching and wildlife trafficking threat presents a complex law enforcement and social challenge. Much of the illegal activity occurs or is initiated in remote and expansive rural areas where wildlife and humans coexist, which is outside the Kenya Wildlife Service managed national parks. Most rural people in Savo view wildlife as a threat to their lives and livelihoods or competition for resources such as grazing, land, 
and water. They see few direct or indirect benefits from wildlife, and in the absence of other income opportunities, will resort to poaching on behalf of others as a form of employment. I believe the term wildlife management is a misnomer. Wildlife will prosper and natural resources will bring more equitable, more sustainable benefits if we, as the dominant species, can provide a conducive environment for both humans and wildlife. So in essence, it's human wildlife, it's human management that we are addressing. In Kenya, as elsewhere across the world, the exposure to widely accessible modern communications and new media has given impoverished rural people a wider perspective and created new and high expectations, in some cases far beyond what is realistically achievable. In some areas, this has resulted in resentment, dissent, despondency, and even anger, which is an ideal environment for exploitation by extremists or organized illegal entities. So in response to this complex challenge faced by the Savo ecosystem, the Savo Trust is implementing its stabilization through conservation or StableCon approach, which provides a holistic, culturally aware and nature-based approach to undermining the spread of organized crime and reducing illegal wildlife trafficking. It helps curb radicalization through strengthening rural communities and protecting biodiversity while populating vulnerable spaces with robust community government systems. Stabacon utilizes conservation infrastructure not only to protect wildlife, but also to help stabilize the human terrain, thereby supporting the national security effort and giving wildlife and the natural environment a much greater value than tourism dollars alone. In Savo, rural communities are the most important actors in countering wildlife crime and other legal activities at source, but they will only have the ability and resolve to act against these destructive influences if they have the opportunity to prosper themselves and have realistic prospects for the future. Stabilcore can bring stability to vulnerable regions from the inside out rather than the outside in. It does not seek to impose ownership or control over communities. It works alongside Savo's rural communities, the Kenya Wildlife Conservancies Association and the Kenya Wildlife Service, national government law enforcement agencies, local and international academic institutions, and other partners delivering similar on-the-ground development and conservation projects. Stabilcon is readily exportable, not only to other countries in Africa, but to also to other parts of the world where marginalized rural communities inhabit vulnerable and natural resource-rich environments. Any structured organization can work, in the rural, can work in the rural space can implement Stabilcon, including commercial businesses, faith-based institutions, local or national governments, community groups, NGOs, or civil military partnerships. Stablecon can play a key role in contributing to the existing and ongoing success of community conservancies in Kenya, particularly in current unrepresented areas. The community conservancies are nat nature reserves owned and managed by local rural communities with support from stewardship organizations when required. The areas are zoned to allow a range of sustainable complementary land uses, such as cattle ranching. Conservancies have already proved successful in Mongolia, Namibia, and Kenya based on the original concepts developed right here in the United States. Mr. Chairman, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today to discuss this important issue. I look forward to answering any questions community me committee members may have. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Fromo. Uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee. Uh, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, thank you for giving us the opportunity to uh, African Park to testify on that subject. My name is uh, Jean-Marc Fromo. 
I am a biologist and uh, I'm working for conservation in Africa since 40 years. Um, mm. I basically work more in Central African countries. I am born in east of DRC, and at that time the continent had only 300, uh, 300 million inhabitants, and the continent was quite peaceful. Uh, very quick, uh, my passion for elephant and wildlife became the center of my life. In 75, uh, my first job in conservation was an elephant translocation in Rwanda to Akagera National Parks, due to demographic pressure already. Um, this have been, uh, then have been to, to Europe for, to make my master in biology. Uh, my main concern was to go back to the wilderness of Africa and I find a job of, uh, in the 80, uh, like volunteers in the Northern Central African Republic at the boundary of Chad and uh, South Sudan. Uh, and I met there uh, Richard Ruggiero and uh, Mike Fay, who are working also in that region. And it was really a wild area, completely untouched with uh, a lot of wildlife. But um, in, uh, at, that at that time, uh, this region is facing, facing already major threat and security. Uh, Osman and Janjaweed from Darfur, linked with the Northern Sudan Army, uh, have already started slaughtering elephants. And uh, at the same time, all authority and community have already started uh, killing elephants and responding to the demand of ivory and uh, on uh, meat, bu uh, bush meat trade. And so to, to show the dimension of the problem, I asked Ian Douglas Hamilton, who have created Save the Elephant, to come in Seya to bring the dimension of the slaughter to the world at that time. And um, uh, our job was in that region just to support the Minister des Eaux et Forêts to establish park and fighting uh, uh, anti-poaching. All my life we have tried to support the public, uh, public service to, to try to address the problem. But 20 years later, we are still trying to support this administration. Uh, the wildlife and the elephant were still decreasing and the, in addition of the loss uh, of elephant, we are losing more and more quickly the land. Why? Because simply we are now no more 300,000 inhabitants in Africa, we reach 1 billion people. And 50% of the people in Africa is living with less than $2 per, uh, per day. This is the main, the essence of the problems, the demand, international demand and the demand linked to the demography. Today we are still in the same situation. In all countries, the weakness of the public sector and the army are still, uh, are still there and with all the consequences. The demand of land and, uh, or, and uh, protein and wood is, uh, is uh, increasing and in 2000, uh, 2015, we will be uh, 2.5 million inhabitants. It is a big dimension. Africa will go through a major change in the next uh, 20 uh, years. The demand, uh, the, and logically, in that context, insecurity problem of, uh, will, will increase with uh, the emergency of ACME, Boko Haram, 
Silica, Elera, El Shebab. It's part of the problem of poverty. The demand of high value and commodity has increased with the impact of the uh, we, with the impact that we, we know on elephant and, and rhino. Uh, everybody is using that opportunity, uh, including rebel groups and army. And, uh, and it's really using a network, a demand where they can change arms, guns, munitions, money. It's part of that network. And everybody is using that, governments, army, and rebel. In Garamban National Park, where we are working, we must, we, we must face the poaching of Elera and Janjawit, but also the, the poaching linked to the Southern Army and also military helicopter, probably coming from Uganda. Um, it is essential that the international community understand uh, that if the demand of high-value product uh, must be avoided at all costs and very quick, it is not the only action that we must undertake. Other solutions must be taken to solve the problem of the increasing of population and demography. There is an urgency, simply simple and pragmatic solution for management of natural resources uh, must be implemented as quick as possible uh, to, uh, to help the state to control the resource. Given the size and the complexity of the crisis, but also the urgency to intervene, it is important to fix some priority. Uh, it is widely accepted that the establishment of truly protected area uh, or network is an essential element of the continent conservation strategy. The current protected area are a good representative of the biological diversity of the continent and have legal status to allow their protection. Giving priority to the protected area, it is certainly the establishment of the foundation of a pragmatic conservation strategy at the continental level that will snowball and progressively address the more broadly general problem of the environment. Natural resources and protected area are not only the sector suffering from the deficiency of the public sector. Other sectors such as education, health, uh, communication, could help find solutions by delegating part of the responsibility to the civil society, the NGO and the private. Yet in many countries, management of natural resources and protected area, wildlife, have been remained in the prerogative of the state institution. If we underline the problem is the failure of the public sector, then we need to find solution of that. And in other sectors, private-public partnership uh, through uh, state uh, uh, delegation and uh, share the, the responsibility uh, with the civil society have bring solution. African parks are certainly be a pioneer in that area of management of protected area. The central concept of public partnership is the separation of the responsibility between the states and African parks. The state, the state is the owner of the park and is, the responsi is responsible for legislation, policy and strategy. African parks is more responsible for the execution of the management function and accountable to the states on its performance. 
it is a, uh, this separation of function is es essential for accountability for both partners. And it's a largely alien concept in the traditional conservation world. By entering into long-term partnership with government, we assume the total responsibility for the national park. We, must, uh, we put in place governance structure, we manage the skill, and we, fund, we find uh, funding solutions that, uh, that are also desperate needed. When government gives us the, the mandate and the power to manage, the results are formidable. Uh, in all parts that we are managing, we are making very good progress. And most of the wildlife population trends are, going, are increasing. Uh, except maybe in two parks. In Garamba National Park and in Chinko, we have still a major problem with elephant uh, facing the, the armed groups, the LRA and the Janjaweed. But the, the main problem of that is because we, we, have not, we cannot manage to have arms and munition uh, for the train to train our guards and fully address the problem of security linked to the LRA and the armed groups. And, and that was a major issue for us because everybody can have guns and munition. It's so easy to find except us who are legally bringing the security in the parks. Uh, I would like to add one point. Uh, I think it's important. Um, it is an, a black hole between CEA, Northern Sudan, and uh, Northern DRC. It is an area of 60 million hectares with very little resident population and where all rebel groups can find a refuge. Janjaweed, Elera, Seneca, are present in this big area and, in f and they are not far from Boko Haram. They are, not, they are with the Janjaweed. This wild era can be the most difficult question in Africa in the next 10, 20 years. And we need to find a solution. Management and management of natural resources in that area is certainly a key element to, pre uh, to prevent something that can be a, very, a real disaster for Africa. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Dr. Widmeyer. Thanks, Chairman Flink. Um, ranking members, members of the committee, I want to thank you for the opportunity to submit testimony for the record of this hearing. My name is George Widemeyer. I'm a professor at Colorado State University, and I'm the chairman of the scientific board for the Kenya-based organization Save the Elephants. I've been studying a population of elephants in northern Kenya for 18 years, witnessing ivory poaching hit elephants I know individually. I'd like to begin by summarizing our current scientific knowledge on elephant poaching. Last September, I led with colleagues a peer-reviewed paper that used surveys of, of elephant carcasses across Africa to estimate the poaching of 100,000 elephants in the three years between 2010 and 2012. I updated this analysis for this hearing, finding poaching rates in 2013 and 14 continued to exceed natural growth rates for elephants, indicating the species has been in a poaching-driven decline for the last five years. Paul Allen's Great Elephant Census of Savannah Populations uncovered massive losses in Tanzania, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe. Tanzania alone has lost over 50,000 elephants since uh, 2009. That's a 60% decline in that country's elephants. 
Um, the Wildlife Conservation Society documented a 62% decline in forest elephants between 2002 and 2011, and that decline continues. The Elephant Trade Information System documented the highest volumes of seized ivory ever recorded in 2013. Much of this ivory is tra trafficked out of two ports, Mombasa, Kenya, and Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Scientific outputs have identified the problem sites. We now need serious action to address them. While these numbers are grim, it's important to recognize that the slaughter of elephants is not happening everywhere. We are seeing successes on the ground. I want to highlight our experience in northern Kenya, where a community conservation model called the Northern Rangeland Trust, supported by USAID and in collaboration with Lewa Conservancy and Save the Elephants, has helped stop the poaching surge. Information from the communities and partner organizations have been critical in catalyzing effective policing actions by the Kenya Wildlife Service. The success is occurring in a remote, poorly policed region awash in illegal small arms with few governmentally protected areas, an area with significant conservation challenges. Four te fundamental tenets for successful community conservation can be drawn from this project. The first is good governance models, which, uh, which are built through community-led decision-making with external oversights. The second is effective incentive models that get to the fundamental needs of the community. In our case, this was enhancing security to bring peace between different ethnic groups rather than a purely economic model. The third is land use planning to ensure long-term conservation viability. And the fourth is effective policing, which, is, which in our case has been enhanced through these novel lines of intelligence provided by the community. Um, but ultimately, the policing was conducted by official enforcement agents making targeted and effective interdictions. Conditions that facilitate poaching and wildlife trafficking vary by country and sites within countries across Africa. There is not a single prescription that can solve the issue of wildlife poaching in Africa. Doctor, can you hold that thought? Yeah. Um, they uh, pulled a fast one and moved this uh, from a 15-minute vote to a 10-minute vote, so I just have a couple of minutes to go over and vote. So we'll Great. recess for just a few minutes and get right okay. back to your testimony. Apologize no for worries. this, but uh, hopefully Senator Markey will be here as well when we return. Great. So we're in recess. Here we'll come back to order. Thank you for your indulgence. And we've been joined by Senator Udall, New Mexico. Uh, Dr. Woodmere, if you will go ahead and finish. All right, thank you. Um, welcome, Senator Udall. Um, so I, I had ended, I gave some tenants, some core tenants to the community conservation programs that we're working closely with in Kenya. Um, and I. Uh, I stopped at the point where I was talking about how conditions that facilitate poaching and wildlife trafficking vary by country and sites across Africa, um, and that there is not a single prescription that can solve the issue of wildlife poaching in Africa. Um, funding targeted projects with implementing partners that are deeply knowledgeable and experienced in threatened areas is the model of Save the Elephants Elephant Crisis Fund, a tactical program seeing successes on the ground in a diversity of contexts. I've attached our, um, our quarterly or our annual summary to my uh, testimony so that as an as information base for you guys to look at the different programs we're engaged with. There's quite a diverse portfolio in that. Um, this is also the model that U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Species Conservation Fund, a program widely seen as offering one of the greatest returns on investment. Increasing funding to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Elephant Conservation Fund is a mechanism for immediate impact on the elephant crisis. The U.S. government plays a critical role in addressing elephant poaching, and U.S. funding, particularly by USAID and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, is the foundation of many successful projects. But there are other agencies that can contribute substantively as well. 
The DEA has a blueprint for successfully combating criminal networks in Africa. The Department of Defense Counter Threats Office and the Treasury Department are experienced in disrupting criminal networks, expertise that could be highly effective in disrupting wildlife trafficking syndicates. The White House Executive Order on Wildlife Trafficking has been critical to bring concerted action by the U.S. government, but direct appropriations can ensure application of relevant expertise and experience to illegal wildlife trade. Ultimately, it is critical to enhance U.S. support of projects focused on population protection, judicial oversight and reform in source nations, and specialized criminal investigative units. Finally, the most obvious game changer to end ivory poaching would be a ban on domestic ivory trade by China. Chinese rhetoric suggests that a domestic trade ban by the U.S. may be the most likely action to catalyze this. We have reached the point where collectively we know how to effectively combat wildlife crime. This is a winnable battle. It's time to take action to dismantle the illegal trade networks and build the wildlife sector in Africa as a foundation for rural development. Thank you, Chairman Flank and distinguished members of the committee. I look forward to answering any questions you might have. Thank you, Ms. Hemley. Thank you very much, Chairman Flank and Senator Udall and all the members of your subcommittee for the opportunity to testify today and for all of your attention on this uh, issue. Uh, we greatly appreciate your efforts. Uh, World Wildlife Fund is the largest private conservation organization working internationally to protect wildlife and wildlife habitats, and we currently sponsor programs in more than 100 countries. I won't repeat uh, points made by some of the previous witnesses, um, particularly with, re with respect to elephants, uh, but what I would like to do is touch briefly on the situation related to African rhinos and focus on the needs and uh, potential solutions as related to community-based conservation, anti-trafficking measures, and reducing demand. I'll, I'll talk about a couple of examples from Southern Africa. Uh, let me first uh, reference your comment, Mr. Chairman, earlier about the seriousness of this issue that we're dealing with. We're talking about transnational organized crime as applied to wildlife, and to that end, uh, WWF strongly encourages support for the legislation currently pending in, in both houses, S-27, introduced by Senators Feinstein and Graham, and H.R. 2494, uh, introduced by Representatives Royce and Ingle. Uh, these bills would make it uh, would make large-scale wildlife trafficking a predicate offense to other major crimes such as money laundering, racketeering, and smuggling, uh, and provide critical tools for enforcement uh, that also now are, that are available now for other big crimes that we also need applied to, to wildlife. So we're very encouraged to see this legislation uh, being considered. Regarding rhino poaching, over the 50 years or so that WWF has been involved in rhino conservation, we've seen great strides in both the recovery of rhinos, uh, both black and white rhinos in Africa, as well as periods of severe poaching. Today, four countries hold the key to the black rhino's future in many respects, Namibia, Kenya, South Africa, and Zimbabwe, and for the white rhino, it's South Africa. However, the continued recovery of these populations and the survival of, of rhinos in other parts of Africa is now in doubt in many respects because of the recent uh, resurgence in trade and demand. These days, all eyes are on South Africa, where we've seen a massive increase in poaching over the last seven years. The statistics are, are well known. From 13 rhinos poached in 2007 to over 1,200 in 2014. And according to information we received earlier this week, 2015 is on track to be the worst year yet for rhinos. Current research in South Africa supported by WWF is finding strong evidence that rhino horn trafficking is controlled by sophisticated organized crime groups that are involved in smuggling both people and narcotics with operations firmly embedded within South Africa. In the last three years or so, 
Tens of millions of dollars, including from generous supporters in the U.S., including the U.S. government, have been contributed to the South African government and other key stakeholders in the country, and yet the poaching and trafficking problem is getting worse. Uh, we're highly concerned about the persistent allegations of serious levels of corruption there that occur hand-in-hand -hand with these organized crime activities. Um, it is our view that until the South African government addresses these uh, issues on a sufficient scale, uh, that nothing is going to change. So we, we, we see this as a high priority, and we encourage this committee to use its influence to press the South African government to do more and to help uh, where, they, where we can uh, as a country. Turning uh, to the next door to South Africa, Namibia. Uh, Namibia is currently the, the continent stronghold for black rhino, and the country is uh, in many ways a great example of how wildlife resources, if properly conserved, can form the basis for both economic growth in impoverished regions and, and effective conservation. The community-run conservancies in Namibia are an effective model, thanks in part to generous support over many years from USAID and more recently the Millennium Challenge Corporation, working with WWF and other local partners. These in these conservancies, uh, much as you've heard from other witnesses and other countries, local communities own, manage, and profit from their own wildlife resources, which has contributed to rebounding wildlife population as well as increased economic benefits for local people. Uh, until recently, Namibia's rhino uh, and elephant populations have been largely immune to poaching, but unfortunately, the wave of poaching that is sweeping Africa is finally hitting Namibia. Uh, about 70 rhinos have been poached this year, nearly all in the western part of the uh, Tosha National Park. In just the last three weeks, though, we're, we're encouraged that over 30 arrests have been made, mainly of low-level government officials, so Namibia's got an own, its own internal problem but they seem to be taking action uh, through a no-tolerance-for-poaching approach that the country has taken on. Um, the next key step for Namibia is to ensure that the judiciary, judiciary pro pro prosecutes these crimes in a serious manner, and we're working to help them uh, ensure that they have a w dedicated wildlife prosecution specialist um, established. So uh, when, it, when it comes down to it, uh, the, one of the reasons Namibia has been successful, reflecting some of the um, comments made by other witnesses in other countries, many of the arrests have been achieved through information provided from community intelligence and informer networks, which are then passed on, it's passed on to enforcement officials. I'll just mention briefly an example in, in Asia, which, where we've also seen actually success in, in keeping poaching under control, the country of Nepal, similarly strongly focused on community-based conservation with strong uh, support for uh, enforcement from highest levels of government has resulted in three of the last five years, zero poaching of rhinos, elephants, and tigers in Nepal. And so it's just another example of what can be effective. Um, let me just briefly mention that we're not, uh, we're not going to uh, address this issue successfully unless we really disrupt these transnational organized crime syndicates. And to that end, it's critical to see enhanced intelligence and information systems not only within these countries but across countries, across borders. Uh, we do not yet have uh, sort of proactive intelligence collection systems that are integrated across borders that will allow us to direct more strategically enforcement efforts. And so that's an area that we see as a weakness that could be remedied by training, support from the U.S. for training, provision of intelligence analysis software, and additional resources that would allow enforcement staff to uh, allocate more uh, strategic focus on the areas that are the biggest problems. I know it's, this is a priority for the State Department and the Fish and Wildlife Service. We urge continued support for these activities, uh, and, and we feel they're strongly needed. 
Uh, last point I'll make very briefly, um, previous witness touched on this as well, stopping demand is obviously critical. Of the three areas uh, that are critical for action in this, uh, on this whole issue, uh, anti-poaching, anti-trafficking, and demand reduction, demand reduction has received by far the least investment uh, over the years, so we see a real need to uh, emphasize that more. We're encouraged by recent news from China as the big driver, uh, uh, encouraged by the news that, that they are uh, committed to uh, eliminating their ivory market but uh, we haven't seen that action yet, and it will be influenced by what the U.S. does as well for its own ivory market. So I'll stop there, Mr. Chairman, and uh, look forward to any questions. Thank you, and thank you all, and thank you for enduring the interruption. But uh, Mr. Saunders, uh, we spoke before um, in my office, and uh, we talked about uh, um, the, the model that you have there, and it's interesting, some of the community-based models elsewhere uh, the community derives significant uh, revenue from tourism or, or, uh, or other means. That's not the case necessarily with what you're talking about. That will come hopefully later and is a uh, part of the reason it, it's being done. But, uh, but your, what these communities get is security. Um, t tell us how wildlife uh, uh, trafficking uh, diminishes security in these communities and, and, uh, and why this model works. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, the area that, that we operate in, um, in, uh, in the Savo ecosystem, uh, is, is a very remote and harsh area. There's uh, very little government police presence and uh, a lot of uh, lawlessness. And that's an issue that, that any country has, has, a, has a, a great deal of uh, difficulty in addressing. What, uh, what we're doing is we're working with the community and galvanizing them together. They're, they're a, a semi-nomadic community of pastoralists. And of course, when you've got a semi-nomadic community, it's very easy to um, put pressure on them from outside agencies because there's no cohesion. What the Conservancy has done is brought the community together and given it cohesion and given it strength. And in this way, we've, uh, we've assisted in, in through that cohesion, uh, gaining a much more secure environment. And, and the community themselves are uh, now a very robust community uh, when it comes to uh, beating the challenges of radicalization and other external forces, uh, including corruption. I mean, yesterday we had a, the conference at CSIS and everybody was pretty sound on the idea that one of our biggest enemies is corruption. And by galvanizing the, let's say, and I keep saying this, is rather than the community, let's say the electorate. Because communities are impoverished people, uh, the electorate is a powerful individual. And so the, uh, the galvanizing of the electorate has now given communities who were once at risk now a, a much uh, enhanced uh, sense of security. Right. Dr. Fromont, you had mentioned, or Mr. Fromont, you had mentioned that uh, uh, your, the model that, that you have, this public-private partnership where you manage the parks, is, is better than uh, government management of the parks. Why is that? Why does this model work? Uh, you mentioned that it leads to greater accountability. How is that so? Um, the, the, I said the main reason is because we, firstly, we, we got the mandate uh, from the government to, and we need, we are accountable, so we need to react to any problems. And when we face one problem, security of community, we need to react to that. Uh, the, the, the element, the, the, the second point which is very important is that 
um, you, you cannot be in an area for a very long period of time without developing your relation with all the community. And when a community has a problem, you need to address that. The first, for example, in Garamba, it was the security. We addressed the security issues. But in other areas, when there's some health problems, we can address these health problems and slowly bring the community inside the, uh, the, the model. And um, the, the second element is that you have the capacity to to develop the team that you are working with. So you, you can you are not depending only on the people that are giving by the government. You can also train and build your skill and, and starting to be to have a professional teams who can address the different problems. And, and the third element is that because we have the responsibility this in, uh, this this for the long term with the government, we, we need to find some funding of all solution. And, and one of the solution is the, the resource that you have inside the park, and we need to develop that with all the effect in terms of economical development and, and social de development that you have around, based on the, the, the resource of the park. Uh, one of the parks that we have in, 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 in Akagura National Park, uh, for example, in, in four years' time, we have generated the, the revenue, uh, a revenue who can sustain the park. So it's, it was at the same time you rebuild, you build your the resource and you put a value on that and you can use that for the park and the community. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Wittemeyer, you, you mentioned that the main transit points uh, you found for the most recent poaching is Mombasa and uh, Dar es Salaam. Has that changed over time? Uh, does that shift uh, depending on where uh, things are coming from or is that the main transit points where it's easiest to get to Asia, to the markets there, or what explains that phenomenon? Yeah, so they, so they have uh, shifted to some extent, um, but I think it's, it's particularly related to where the, ma the most volume of ivory is leaving, uh, the, the source populations that are closest to the uh, port of exit. So we've also seen um, a, a several West African ports and, and Southern African, South African ports also uh, be the source of, of trafficking or the exit point uh, from Africa. But, but uh, I, you know, it's difficult. We're, this is really an information gap for us on why, it, why, what is specific about these two locations that is allowing huge, really massive volumes of ivory to flow off the continent from those points. And, and I, I guess my assumption would be that there's, there's been very little effective policing and it's obviously a, um, a low risk, easy um, pathway for this ivory to leave. Um, so this is a real, that's a really critical uh, point in the ivory trafficking chain that we need to tackle. Right. Well, thank you. Uh, Ms. Hemley, I found your testimony really interesting, you know, going country by country or, or uh, um, issue by issue there. And, and with regard to Namibia, I happened to be there in 1989-90 when the Constitution uh, was drafted, where they did have a strong uh, conservation uh, element to it and commitment there, and, uh, and it has paid off. And they, uh, this community-based uh, uh, approach has, has worked there. Uh, what about Botswana? Um, what uh, are we seeing there? We have to see some of the trends that we see in South Africa and Namibia, or what makes Botswana different? They've had pretty stable, uh, stable populations there. Uh, well, Botswana has long been a stronghold for a lot of wildlife species, as you uh, no doubt know. Um, and a stable government and generally good governance has certainly contributed to, to that and uh, a relatively strong economy. Um, it, the um, making 
at a high priority. High-end tourism certainly has led to generally well-managed parks uh, with revenues uh, going into the parks. Uh, ha has made that, uh, I think, uh, effective. Um, I understand that there have been some recent changes in Botswana related to community-based conservation uh, that uh, we're looking into that may be em put placing less emphasis on the importance of communities, which would be a bit of a concern, in our view, if uh, given the model in Namibia. Uh, thus far, Botswana hasn't had the poaching that we've seen in South Africa, uh, mm -hmm. with the emphasis being on rhinos in South Africa. Uh, but with the you know huge herds of elephants in the north of Botswana, certainly you've, you know there that's an area that is is like Namibia. Uh, we're starting to see a bit of poaching uh, around that the borders uh, in, in northern Botswana. That uh, you know we, we need to to help ensure don't get succumb to the the major poaching that we're seeing in East Africa. Well, thank you, uh, Ranking Member Markey has uh, generously deferred to. Uh, Senator Udall for questions first. Thank you, Senator Markey, and thank you, uh, uh, Chairman Flake. This is a, um, a very important hearing, and I appreciate both of you working together on this and, and bringing these issues forward. We, we, I remember I was visiting with Jeanette a little bit. We, Senator Kerry, when he chaired this committee, I think three years ago, had Ian Hamilton from Save the Elephants here, and it was a very... Uh, emotional hearing so much and and all of us feel strongly you look at these these charismatic animals and you and you just say how's this happening to Africa across all of these countries um, and it, it, looking back on that hearing and what's happened over the three years do are we are we making a dent are we is there progress is there success I mean what it what is it you think uh, we should be doing to to uh, uh, further this, I, I'm uh, later in the month of August going to go to Tanzania. <clears throat> I hope to to get out into the bush and get a chance to visit with some of the officials out there, and I hope to to exchange ideas with you uh, when I get back in terms of where we're headed. But I guess the big overall question is from that last hearing, some of you may or may not have been aware of it, but just think back uh, three years ago, I mean, where where are we? What what's and what's succeeding? I don't want this to just be a a, a downer here. I mean, what it, and you've talked about the models. Jeff's brought out the models, and maybe you can elaborate a little more on that. And questions to all the panelists here. Yeah, I might just follow up. One thing um, that's happened since that time is we've had really definitive uh, data on poaching hotspots and trafficking hotspots that are, that are helping to triangulate and focus our attention on, on the problem areas. Um, I also think when, when that hearing was, was, uh, occurred, we were on the upsurge of poaching. And, and depending on what records you're looking at now, uh, it looks like we may be plateauing. We're seeing places, our, our ecosystem at that time, we were having um, eight, eight to 10% of the population shot out a year. We're now down to levels we haven't seen since 2008. The elephant population increased for the first time uh, in 2014. And so we, we are seeing definitive successes in different areas. We're also seeing uh, massive problems. And Tanzania has been uh, the, the real disaster that we're recording. And, and any attention, any engagement you can do with the Tanzanian government, the scale, I, I just wanted to reiterate, 50,000 elephants, um, that's from aerial census data, have been killed in that country in five years. That's industrial scale poaching. That's massive volumes of ivory that are being funneled out of that country. And there is very few arrests. There's very little 
um, of anything going on in relation to that. There's, there's constant rhetoric by the Tanzanian government that they're going to address this problem. We've seen little action on the ground. Um, and I think that this is, a, this is something that the US government can really diplomatically really put pressure on them. What's going on there is a disaster. And, and uh, any attention, any help you can, you can bring to that. Um, there must be um, knowledge of, of the scale of this. There must be knowledge within the government body of what's happening and why. And, and anything you can do to, to elicit action would be greatly appreciated. Can, can, I, can I just add to that, actually? And, uh, I often get asked why in Kenya we don't have any... If you could turn on your microphone. There. Hello? How's that? Oh, there Sorry. it is. Yes. Um, I'm often asked why we don't have any wildlife champions in our parliament. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a continual question we, we get asked. Right. Right. And uh, I think quite simply is that... Uh, in, in, in Africa, as far as the members of parliament, in our parliament are concerned, is we will not get any wildlife champions unless wildlife becomes an issue that can win votes. And that's not going to happen until there's a value for wildlife amongst the electorate. And so the community approach by uh, creating a higher value to the electorate is the way and the pathway that we can start to gain more political champions and the you know the, the, all of the community-based organizations in Africa that are doing that are the, the, the galvanizing communities that are giving again the electorate the power and, and an understanding that, that if they support wildlife they get security they get a chance to build an econ a rural economical a rural economic uh, base for themselves then we'll start to get that um, traction in, in, in our parliaments but until we until we get to that phase where we're going to be pushed to try and get political traction. We might get political rhetoric, which is positive, but when it comes to voting, it's not, if it's not going to keep people in the power, they're not going to put their time and energy into it. They'd rather put it on other areas such as food and water, although it's still linked. So it's in, from, from, you know, talking from that community perspective and empowering the, the electorate, I believe that's a, one of the many areas that I think we need to concentrate on. So Ian, what, what you're talking about is you're talking about where the community really sees it in their interest to be preserving the entire ecosystem, the animals, and that there's, a, there's an economic benefit that, yeah. that, it, that is essential here. And, and really, it's driving home the fact that, that if you have a sustainable ecosystem, it's, it's going to provide sustenance for the community. But you need to drive all of those things home, and then I think people working in and around the parks and seeing the benefit of tourism, all of that, I think that's what your partnership does, doesn't it, is to try to bring yes. that home. I mean, in our area, we, we um, uh, and Governor Tato is sitting behind me here, who's the county governor of, of where the Conservancy is, is, is proof that we've got support at every single level. So, you know, from herdsmen to, to, to local government, all the way up to the governor himself. And uh, we don't have a tourism option in Tana River, in that part of Tana River, because of the destabilized element. So the most important element is livestock. So we're looking at livestock to provide a firm economic, economic base into the future. When that happens, tourism will come as a, as a cherry on the cake. But, but culturally, livestock is, is at the center of, of, uh, of, of the life. And, and if we can enhance that, it provides um, stability because people start to gain a more uh, firmer economic base. And, and then it becomes a political issue. Then people want to be aligned to it, and that's when we start to get results, I think, at that yeah. point.
Could I just add a bit to, to the conversation here? Um, you asked what's happened in the last three years. Uh, that's good. We're seeing some progress. And George mentioned possibly the plateauing of poaching. We will see. Um, three, th three important things internationally have happened that we believe are helping, but we need to sustain. Uh, congressional appropriations have increased. There's more resources going to the field to address this issue. That's absolutely key. President Obama launched his national strategy to combat wildlife trafficking. That, is, that has been a, had, had a huge impact globally in terms of visibility, getting attention at the highest levels of government around the world. And we're beginning to also see on the demand side the attention being paid in key consumer markets in China, you heard about, in Thailand as well, in Vietnam for rhino horn. Whereas a couple of years ago, some of those governments were in denial that there was a problem. They're, they're acknowledging it now. They're beginning, beginning to make commitments to cracking down and hopefully eliminating markets, uh, such as for ivory in China. Through CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, uh, there's been a process of targeting the problem countries. There were eight or 10 countries identified that were problematic, that were required to put together full plans for addressing these issues. That alone, I think, has triggered great attention, both in Africa as well as in Asia on demand. So we've seen a, a lot of momentum that uh, I think is, has been critical to the progress that we're beginning to see. Great. Thank you, and thank you, Senator Markey. Thank you very much. Anyway, let me just say, it's what a pleasure it's been to work with Senator Markey on this. This is an issue that we both felt uh, needed to be addressed, and uh, you want to make any re opening remarks as well? And if, if I may, I'll, I, I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. You are right. This is an issue which is near and dear to both of our hearts, and, <clears throat> and uh, I think it's a timely and very important uh, hearing, and it's critical that we keep a spotlight on this. <clears throat> and I'll just say briefly as an opening that <clears throat> poachers with ties to global organized crime syndicates and violent armed groups continue to cross international borders to kill elephants and rhinos for their tusks and are better equipped than the park rangers who are charged to protect them. Park rangers have been ambushed, attacked, lost their lives in the line of duty after encountering, encountering poachers armed with weapons of war, military grade weaponry and technology. Last month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service launched a campaign on social media when the agency crushed one ton of illegal ivory in New York City's Times Square to send a message to wildlife traffickers and raise awareness about the importance of these issues. Hashtag Ivory Crush was trending all over Twitter and Facebook. Uh, and I think it just is a reflection of how important people in our country, in the world, see this issue. Wildlife poaching and trafficking is a global problem, but one that has local solutions. This is not just a problem for African nations, it is also an American problem. We are the second largest market for illegal wildlife product, products like ivory uh, and other uh, precious goods. China recently announced it will crack down on illegal ivory trade, but has stated they will not act alone. They are looking to the United States and other nations to partner on the issue of illegal wildlife trafficking. This is a bipartisan issue that Congress can and should work together uh, to put solutions in place. And that is my pledge to Senator Flake to work with him uh, in that fashion. The implementation plan released by the President's Task Force on Combating Wildlife Trafficking is an important step forward to developing solutions. And I'm particularly encouraged by efforts to use innovative technology in solving this problem. I look forward 
to working on legislation that would complement the administration's actions and supporting our African po uh, policies. So let me begin with you, if I may, uh, Ms. Hemley. Uh, in 2012, uh, Google donated $5 million to your organization to provide technology towards conservation and anti-poaching efforts through the Global Impact Awards. This technology assists in monitoring the habitats and trafficking routes <clears throat> of wildlife and additionally provides high-tech gear for rangers to ward off poachers. Has the technology been successful in reducing poaching capabilities? Yes, Google did provide a generous uh, grant uh, to, for us to test and pilot some new technologies. You know, it's too soon to tell if we have found uh, sort of solutions that can be scaled fully, but we are in some interesting tests in both Namibia and Nepal with uh, drones uh, to help with you know, aerial monitoring, poaching, <clears throat> with testing, but, but it's not, that, that has often got a lot of attention, that aspect of the, the funding. There are a lot of other technologies that are as important uh, to help out and we need to look at all of them. Uh, using infrared cameras in new ways, uh, using, uh, in, using new kinds of software for uh, collecting and analyzing data has to all be integrated into the systems. And so we've got a variety of, of efforts underway to do that. We hope to know in the next one to two years uh, what, what can be scaled and taken out to the field in a practical way. One of the challenges we've seen in these remote areas is just you know, when you're using uh, IT, uh, getting cell phone coverage uh, is, 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 can often be a limitation. So we're talking to some of the companies, cell phone companies here in the US to figure out ways you can get connectivity in the national parks that you know, is critical to You should to talk to Google about that as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, they have partners in that way. Okay. So, uh, <clears throat> so I think if you set the example, you can show how uh, technology can work, then maybe we can find other companies. Absolutely. Partner with you. But uh, that's just one, the next step comes when you go back again after proving the success of Absolutely. the use of technology and trying to get more uh, wireless technology. Um, Dr. Uh, Wittemeyer, um, technology is important, but science is important as well. So could you talk a little bit about the role which science plays uh, in helping to create an anti-poaching environment? Uh, yes. So, I, so science, I mentioned the scientific data that we know to date. Science has been the foundation with which we've been able to actually measure the scale of this <clears throat> problem, uh, key in on the critical points, uh, the critical populations under threat, uh, the, some of the trade uh, aspects of trade, although there's a lot of black boxes in the trade routes. Um, and, and science fundamental to uh, continued monitoring and, and understanding, identifying where solutions are working and where they're failing. Um, without proper monitoring, we're, we're not able to identify what we're having successes with. Um, one technological solution I wanted to speak to that we're doing is, is uh, through radio tracking data of, of animals. And uh, right now, actually, on my computer, I can bring up, we can visualize elephants moving around uh, in different parts of, of Africa. And we're using this to help uh, deploy anti-poaching assets to identify when elephants enter danger zones. It's geofencing is what it's called when an elephant enters, say, a, a farm and starts crop raiding. We can actually get a, a SMS, GMS uh, message on my cell phone that says this elephant entered this parcel and is likely 
cooperating. These types of technologies help us to have rapid responses, uh, be much more effective in our deployment of assets, especially when we're, we're all asset uh, limited. Um, and so the technology has a big place, and, and we actually have leveraged private money to, to help develop these, these areas. So I agree, technology is a key. So let's, uh, uh, science is the key. Your science, sorry. technology. Yep, science. sorry, sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, so I want to come back on the elephants, come back over to you, uh, Ms. Hemley. Um, we have the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. It gives us an opportunity to think about diplomacy, how we're going to work together. But yet, that convention was not successful in stopping the sale of 24 elephants from Zimbabwe to China. So talk about that and what needs to be done in order to ensure that there is an enforcement capacity here uh, to protect these um, very precious um, uh, resources that are diminishing by the day. We were just talking about that issue actually on the ta taxi over here. Um, that issue has us deeply concerned. Uh, the permit to uh, export those 24 live uh, young elephants uh, was granted and on the face of it uh, is supposedly in compliance with the CITES requirements. Uh, but in our view, uh, other issues need to be considered. Uh, and we know that Zimbabwe has had very serious issues with uh, elephant population numbers being reduced by poor management and poaching uh, in the conservancies there. And so we, uh, we share your concern and uh, it, we, we would like to see more done. And Okay, so give us a recommendation in terms of the enforcement tools that you would like to see put in place or the enforcement tools that are already in place and how you would like to see them enforced. How can you give us yeah. the instructions we need in order to act in a way that Put some real well, the teeth. Fish and Wildlife Service has, in fact, uh, now has a ban in place for the import of uh, sport trophies uh, from Zimbabwe, which is a good thing because of that management. So they've taken the action because of the concerns there. Uh, diplomatic pressure to Zimbabwe. We know it's a complicated, probably, equation diplomatically with that country now. Uh, but they they cut a deal with China, basically, uh, and uh, you know, international pressure and publicity over this issue is certainly something we can do and help with. Uh, but the CITES requirement, in, in this case, we don't believe goes far enough into looking at the ultimate potential impact of the removal of those uh, animals from the populations. And so okay, we- Thank you, thank you. Uh, Dr. Winnemeyer, uh, Mr. Sanders, Saunders, um, both of your, of your organizations do tremendous work. Um, are there enough U.S. resources put into this effort? Does USAID have enough resource uh, to help you to successfully uh, advance the cause. Could each one of you talk about the resource issue here uh, and what is needed in order to ma really make this into a successful program? Mr. Saunders. Uh, yes, I mean, um, speaking from the Savo Trust perspective and, and, uh, and probably on behalf of a lot of the other of our, of our partners who work in a similar vein within the, what we call the sort of the human terrain, really, the, the working with the communities. The, the investment that the US government has made so far has been the major driver to, for, for developing new attitudes and, um, and, uh, and a consensus on, on wildlife and its value within the communities. Um, I think that one of the, one of the, one of the issues we, we, we deal with on a daily basis is, is that, that wildlife conservation is seen as a, as a, as a foreign luxury. 
And, and to overcome that, we've, we've, got to, we've got to give solid reasons and, and work with our, 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 our neighbors and our communities to, to show that, that it actually is a benefit. And uh, the, uh, uh, the INL money has helped us uh, dramatically in doing that. US Fish and Wildlife money has helped us do that with our engagement areas. Um, in the area that we work at, uh, work in, in the Malkalako area, there hasn't been an elephant poached in that area for 11 months to date. That area was the scene of the largest single poaching incident of elephants of its time of 13 elephants shot at one go. And that was the last major one. And that's all been down to the ability to um, uh, move assets into the area and, and change, change perspectives. But I think that the more that we can invest into that approach, the better it will be. And I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see that the USAID have, has a fund for Amboseli and Sava. Dr. Wittemeyer, what, what would you recommend so that we can encourage US agencies to do more in this area? So I, I would start, I want, in full disclosure, actually, we're not receiving uh, US funding in our activities. Um, would, you my, like to, would you like to? We would, certainly we would, yes. But, um, so you don't think there's enough funding? <laughs> I don't think there's enough funding. And I think, um, particularly, I think we need resources that are one of the, so USAID and US Fish and Wildlife Service have done excellent work with US funding on the ground in Africa. Um, what we're seeing is, we're, we're seeing evidence, I mentioned an uh, example from the DEA that was successful in breaking up uh, a criminal network in, in Kenya, actually. Um, that, that type of expertise, um, the, the presidential um, uh, executive order on wildlife trafficking helps to bring all that expertise together, but we haven't seen appropriations maybe put into the, to the most effective agents to have effect. And so one of the concerns I think I'm hearing and that we're seeing is that maybe some of those, um, those individuals in the US government, they're, they're very busy with, with other activities. Uh, the De Department of Defense has a lot of responsibilities and putting wildlife trafficking on their docket uh, in a way that they'll actually engage with is, is difficult. And so possibly funding can help bring some of the expertise, give them the operational capacity to put their resources and expertise into wildlife trafficking, where if you just add it to their docket of, of objectives, they, they, you know, it's number 57 on the list, they can't get to it. And so I think some of these appropriations, particularly on, on intelligence-based criminal network disruption, uh, would be really helpful for us thank, right now. Thank you, Mr. Woodmeyer. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Excellent panel. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Fromont, can you talk a little about the differences between the challenges we face with uh, forest elephants in Gabon and uh, the DRC and uh, the savanna elephants that we've been talking mostly about today? I know a lot of your work is in Central Africa, so you have a good uh, grasp of this. The, the transit routes, I assume, are different uh, in terms of the, the, the traffic out, probably West African ports. Uh, how are these issues uh, different for us? Um, I think that the, the forest elephants are more uh, on pressure related to um, problem of governance uh, of the different country, except in Gabon, where they have started to develop a, a huge uh, nat uh, national park network and try to strengthen the wildlife department to react on, on the problem of poaching in that region. Um, and the, for the, the other region uh, of uh, Central African country, I think most of the popula uh, elephant population have already been wrapped off, except a few elephants in Chad and, and uh, DRC, small pocket remaining. Um, <clears throat> 
but the, 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 main, the main threat in, in the savannah area was much more linked with all the, 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 the Janjaweed and linked with South Sudan and the Lord Resistant Army linked with, uh, with also Northern Sudan. So that's, that's the two major different uh, aspects. And, and what is covering the, the problem of Central African country is that it's only a problem of governance and, and, and corruption. Um, everybody is involved in, in ivory trafficking and meat trafficking and, and uh, uh, without addressing this problem, I think it would be quite difficult to change something in, in, in this part of, uh, of the world. And that's why I think the only possibility we have in that context is really trying to protect few pockets with good management. Thank you. Ms. Hemley, uh, in South Africa, the big problem with uh, rhino poaching, that's mostly white rhino or black rhino in, uh, in Kruger Park? Mostly white rhino. And most of that, they trace, to, it, most of it makes it across the border into Mozambique, I understand. Um, that's a 250-mile border. Uh, very difficult problem there, but uh, you're saying that um, this amount of poaching uh, couldn't be done without some acquiescence or some knowledge, uh, certainly at, uh, at higher levels. Um, and uh, you've encouraged us to take this up with the South African government. Has, has some of this been done? Is it there, uh, are some of the problems being acknowledged at this point? What state are we in? Uh, when, when you have last year 1,200, this year I understand uh, we're already over 700 for the year. Uh, it'll be a, 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 the higher, highest yet. Um, we can't go on very much longer like this. I think it's estimated there are, what, about 20,000 left. Um, so that, that doesn't take long to decimate and be at levels that we were at years and years ago. Um, what, so what, what level are we at right now with South Africa? Uh, we know that South Africa has been a priority for the State Department to the engagement on this issue. Um, uh, at the same time, we, um, we are concerned that there isn't acknowledgement that there is a, a, an internal problem, and we, we do see a lot of philanthropic dollars going into the country that uh, don't seem to be having the kind of Im impact that we would like to see in terms of you know, stopping the problem. Mozambique it has been a, a country of great concern. Um, there is, we know, a, a petition pending uh, with the Interior Department uh, under the Pelly Amendment to certify that country as a key transit point for Rhino, uh, which we believe deserves consideration uh, as given the, the need to crack down on that, that area. Uh, but in terms of South Africa, I, I think we just need to keep the pressure on and engage at the highest levels possible. I know Secretary Clinton was there when she was, was at the State Department a couple of years ago, yet the problem has worsened. And so we just need the support from the highest levels here to engage and press and, uh, and, and get action. Right. Thank you. I'll pose this to Mr. Sanders, but uh, if the others can think about it as well, uh, part of the purpose of this hearing is this is oversight. We appropriate uh, monies for Fish and Wildlife and AID and some of these programs that you're talking about. Can you give us examples of, we've talked about programs, community-based programs that have worked. What doesn't work? What, uh, can you give any examples of, of areas where our, our money could be better spent? And I know some of this changes over time where we focus more on trafficking one year. It may be better to focus more on, uh, you know, funding game rangers the next year, uh, and I understand some of that, but what areas uh, 
uh, should we have, have been proven not to be effective here? Um, I think that, that uh, you know, we're, we're facing such a dynamic challenge. Um, where we're not effective is, is that we're not moving with the challenge. And uh, particularly from a, a wildlife security perspective, uh, we've been, uh, we've been uh, sedatory in, in our approach for many years. I mean, uh, in Kenya and Tanzania, and being a former Tanzania wildlife officer, I can tell you that, that, that our approach to anti-poaching was started in the 1950s, and it hasn't changed. The threat has changed. The dynamism has changed. So I think um, that's an area where we have to look at uh, very closely. And, uh, and by, you know, the way we can address that would be to uh, look at creating a doctrine I mean, we have uh, a continent the size of Africa uh, with many countries carrying out anti-poaching operations and wildlife security, yet, as far as I know, we have no doctrine for wildlife security, which in essence is conservation counterinsurgency, and a doctrine has to be monitored and updated continuously through academic stress testing and, and reports from the field. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an area that we, we haven't been very successful at, at doing, and, and that's what our StableCon philosophy basically uh, wants to address through best practice. So uh, that's what I would say would, would be a not, you know, because this is such a complex matter, yeah. we could come up with 100,000 things, but that's one I think I'd like to identify. And I do understand uh, what works in Kenya may not work in uh, Gabon. Or, um, exactly. Change and different threats, but, but um, anybody else want to take a stab at that or looking at areas that we have over time realized this just isn't, it's not enough bang for the buck or it's just a, uh, misprioritization of funds. Anybody else? I know you don't want to throw any member organizations under the bus, yeah. and I am not trying to go there at all. But uh, but we, we, you know, as part of our oversight role, that's uh, one area that we want to focus on. If we're if there are, are, are monies that are going somewhere that uh, should be better spent, could be better spent elsewhere, then we want to know about it. Yeah. So one one point I'd point out with, um, would be. The Tanzanian example of where actually the high-level officials in the Tanzanian government have brought up and lauded and awarded um, when no action's taking place. Um, USAID money is going in there um, to try to, to, to actually change their wildlife management um, scheme, their hunting-based uh, scheme, which, which really needs this change. It's really imperative. Um, but at the same time, as these monies, as, as these abilities to, to prop up and, and give uh, coverage to these individuals um, occurs, it needs to happen in recognition of successes. Um, so one of the concerns with the Tanzanian government is that possibly they were given too much attention too early in the hope that that would help elicit action. Um, in fact, it didn't. And so uh, we, we need to try to the other side of, of, of really forcing them to take action. Force is the wrong word. Really encouraging them to take action before we uh, award them for, for the lack of action. Ms. Emily. I'll, I'll just add one thing. I think uh, what we've, we've seen a lot in the past uh, help uh, support going towards capacity building in the field, um, which is important, but what we, we think we need is really to uh, take that up a level to uh, increase the professionalization of the ranger corps, the wildlife rangers and the park rangers in the field to upgrade their status within their countries, within their systems, uh, help with training in that respect so that it's not just one-off capacity building uh, opportunities, but really to help kind of upgrade the whole sector there, which is, uh, I think, critical if you're going to have the kind of um, 
credible and supported uh, and uh, the capacities needed to really be effective at the level you need when you're dealing with organized crime and mm -hmm. increasingly sophisticated poaching networks. All right. Thank you. Well, thank you. I just want to uh, thank you again for the, the time that you've spent to preparing. Uh, like I said, I really enjoyed uh, reading all the testimony and hearing it today and uh, further explanations. This will be invaluable to us as we go ahead and make policy and consider the legislation that's before us. We hope that you'll remain in touch. I will uh, certainly keep the hearing uh, the record open uh, for the next couple of days for, for uh, other testimony. And just as a point of personal privilege, uh, I want to thank uh, Mary Angelini, who is here on our staff. She's been on loan from the State Department uh, for the past several months, and uh, this will be the last hearing that she'll be able to put together. She's leaving, uh, going back in a couple of weeks, and just want her to know how much we appreciate her efforts. And, and uh, thank you again, and thank you, uh, Ranking Member Markey, for your help here, and this meeting is adjourned.